Welcome to episode 67 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to be continuing our series on archetypes, and we are talking about the chosen one. Huzzah! Yay! So, the we are going to sort of dissect what the chosen one archetype is for this particular episode. We're also going to talk about examples of chosen one stories that we see in pop culture and the books that we read and I think we can also sort of discuss ones that subvert that trope and maybe also ones that we think maybe don't do it quite so well or maybe we can talk about execution of the chosen one archetype in ways that we personally don't like doesn't necessarily mean that they're always bad it's just that we personally don't like them (laughs) um So let's start by just defining the chosen one archetype. So what would we say that the chosen one archetype is? I mean, I think it's really all there in the name. The chosen one is the one who is chosen. Uh, It's usually a singular person who alone um, can, you know, fight back the darkness or, you know, bring the prophecy to light or, you know, can resolve the conflicts of the plot (laughs) by themselves. Um, You know, it can vary. Sometimes chosen ones are aware that they are going to be chosen based on past accomplishments or their lineage and who they are. Um, Sometimes chosen ones are just ordinary people who don't even know that a greater destiny awaits them until, you know, someone comes forth and informs them um, that they have a greater purpose in this life. So, you know, the, the ways that it's executed can vary, but in general, it's a singular person with a greater purpose. Yeah. Uh, a lot of different stories fall into this archetype. I mean, obviously, the biggest one is Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the, the, the defining chosen one story of our generation, I think, possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Um, the story of, I would say, a lot of various gods and demigods in classical mythology, so like Hercules or, you know, Jesus Christ or a lot of other, you know, sort of big religious or mythological figures. Buffy, mm-hmm. um, Katniss from The Hunger Games. Frodo. Frodo. Um, I would say some of them are sort of divinely or supernaturally chosen, um, and others are just sort of chosen or they take up the mantle perhaps mm. because in the in the case of Frodo there's no real prophecy that says that he has to be the only one that is going mm-hmm. to destroy the one ring and defeat Sauron he's he is he functions as the chosen one in the story but he's the one who chooses to take up that mantle true i would also say that's probably the same with katniss she is chosen one but she's sort of been conferred that status as the symbol as the mocking jay of the rebellion even but she's really the one that made the choice because she's the one that offered herself in place of prim mm. when they were doing the reaping so i don't know would you would you say that a divinely ordained chosen one is something that's inherent to the trope or something that I mean, I think that 
95% of the time, that's how we see it executed. So in my mind, when I think about chosen ones, I usually do think about, you know, some kind of divine or supernatural conferring of power or status upon that person. Um, that's kind of what I tend to associate it with most strongly. You know, I think we have named a couple of exceptions or, or not even exceptions, but, uh, variations maybe on, on that. Um, but I think especially in fantasy, which is where we're going to see the bulk of our chosen one stories. Um, I do think that this is usually something divine, something supernatural, some prophecy, some, you know, ancient text, something somewhere that, uh, indicates that this person alone is is the one who will go forth and accomplish this thing. Yeah, I think I do think that the chosen one is really it's the chosen one is just the name for a type of story where only one person is able to defeat the big bad or fulfill mm-hmm. whatever the story trope is. It doesn't necessarily have to be a prophecy. In Harry in Harry's case in Harry Potter there is a prophecy. Uh, obviously, but even something like Star Wars, I would consider Luke a chosen one figure, but there yeah. is no prophecy attached to Luke. Well, we can get into the weeds of of, <laughs> of the extended universe and, and whatnot, but technically everybody assumed that there was going to be a figure who was going to bring balance to the light and dark sides of the Force, and if we go back to the prequel trilogy, everybody thought that was Anakin. Um, but some people have sort of retroactively applied that prophecy to Luke. But be- if we're going with uh, with air, not air date, uh, what's the word? Just when the movies were released, by release date, the original trilogy, episodes four, five, and six came out first, so we did not know that Luke had a prophecy indirectly attached to him. So I'm mm-hmm. going gonna, gonna to put him in the category where he did not have any sort of divine or supernatural <laughs> prophecy put upon him. Um, so yeah, I think that's really the function somebody plays in a story. Um, and I also think that even if it's not fantasy or if it is fantasy that doesn't necessarily have prophecy or magic attached, I think that characters can function as chosen ones when they're pretty mm-hmm. much like, I'm the only one who can do this. Mm-hmm. I think that's when they become chosen, either by fate or they choose it themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of have, you know, um, the King Arthur sword in the stone thing, like whoever can lift this stone is the next king. And of course, Arthurian legend, he has different claims to that throne, but, you know, the symbol of taking the sword out of the stone is the thing that confers that that's the reason that people accept him, you know, as their leader. And you can kind of say that with Rey in Force Awakens too, when Luke's lightsaber, you know, calls to her and she's drawn to it in that way. So sometimes there's like a mystical object that calls to someone and the person who wields it, you know, then has that power. Yeah. So there is, he was, I believe an academic called Joseph Campbell. Mm -hmm. And sorry, if you guys hear some like weird audio issues going on, it's because I am not home. I am visiting my parents. And so I've sort of set up a weird audio setup and my pop filter is kind of sliding all over the place. So if you just hear weird noises, that would be me. Anyway, going back to, uh, what was I talking about? Conrad, the hero's journey, the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell. He wrote a book called Campbell, not Conrad. Yeah. (laughs) 
Uh, he wrote Heart of Joseph Conrad with the Heart of Darkness, which is totally different. Um, but he wrote a, a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he talks really about this particular journey, the journey of the chosen one. Um, and he has particular steps laid out. It's called He called it the monomyth, and he sort of looked at it as kind of a, a big cultural idea that people had kind of cobbled together. Mm-hmm. So he does include figures like Jesus Christ or Dionysus in the, in the monomyth, but you can sort of apply that to a lot of kind of traditional sword and sorcery fantasy type characters. Uh, you can apply the Chosen One uh, narrative to Frodo. There is a call to action. There is a mentor. There is a, you know, there are a lot of very specific points along the hero, what he called the hero's journey, that we are kind of calling the Chosen One. Because I don't think you can apply the Chosen One narrative to all stories out there. No. Um, so that's actually a pretty good resource if you guys are looking to write Chosen One narratives. And I think... I mean, I know there's a lot of opinion about whether or not the Chosen One archetype is overdone. Um, And this sort of goes back to what we had said the last time in our Archetypes episode about uh, when things become cliche or when things become overused. Um, I personally don't mind a good Chosen One story. I love them. (laughs) I do too. I mean, I don't... I've never really had issues. I mean, I guess because I read so many books as a child with chosen one narratives that I it, I just sort of took it as a convention rather than mm-hmm. something that became super overused. But I mean, what would you what would you make you turn down a chosen one narrative? I think that because the chosen one is a trope um, or, or a, you know, a, an archetype that has pretty much a straightforward formula. I mean, a lot of them really do follow Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey beat for beat. Um, and so if there's nothing original about them, they can be really formulaic. And I think a lot really hinges on the character of the chosen one um, and, and making sure that they have a complex, rich inner life and are unique and you know I think it's really easy to um to make that character a stereotype to really reduce it down to um you know to something that is not alive on the page you know a character that just feels flat and is going through these motions of being chosen and so for me I think the execution I would I would turn down a book with this story if, you know, it's really reductive in terms of character. Um, and also, you know, when so many stories are following the same formula, it's really easy to call all the other stories to mind. So if you give me, like, rehashed Harry Potter, well, Harry Potter always exists and already exists, and I don't want the lukewarm version of Harry Potter. I want... <laughs> something that's new and original (laughs) so I mean I think the formula is helpful in that it gives you kind of these emotional beats that should happen throughout your story to kind of adhere to this classic format and yet at the same time if you don't do anything new with those story beats um, you're just going to have a run-of-the-mill story that looks like everything else that's already out there I would agree that characterization or really just fleshing out the beats as well because Mm. I feel like 
you can tell when something is formulaic or when somebody is adhering strictly to a beat sheet if there's no flexibility or uh, ingenuity. In fact, like when when you feel like they're just hitting marks, you know, on if you're an actor or performer or something, you know, where you're supposed to hit your mark on the stage, that's when something feels formulaic or reads formulaic, it's that. There's nothing inherent to the character that's driving them to the next beat. So, you know, for example, the, you know, it, and this often does hinge on characterization. So if we're going to go back to, let's say, King Arthur, for example, you know, he is the chosen one. He's chosen because his father was the king, um, or he's divinely chosen by the Lady of the Lake, or all the sort of, you know, there, there are multiple reasons that King Arthur is chosen. But if we go back to the motivations of why he's chosen, or why he does or does not want to be chosen, I think that gives that makes us more sympathetic or empathetic with the character, and therefore we are on board, and then his decisions that fall into the this beat framework of the Chosen One narrative don't feel so rote anymore. Mm. I mean, this is the thing about retellings that we've we've talked about before, too. You know, what, what you add or what you don't, and how you retell things... Adding your own spin, humanizing these characters, I think is pretty important. Mm-hmm. So, for yeah, for me, if it's just I can tell what the next step is going to be, but I don't feel it comes naturally from the character, that's when I feel like something is rote and formulaic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you yeah. had mentioned, this is kind of a spinoff, but you had mentioned earlier you'd asked me whether or not I think that the divine call to be chosen is an inherent part of the chosen one trope. And I have another question along those lines for you. Do you think that it is an integral part of the chosen one trope that the chosen one eventually die and or become resurrected? No, I don't think it's inherent to it. I think that the reason, and we're going back to Harry Potter, actually, because I feel like this is going to come up. We're, I think we have probably multiple multiple times discussed our issues with the ending of Harry Potter. Um, but particularly, because for me, a lot of Chosen One archetypes kind of go two ways. There is the um, sort of Christ figure mm. type Chosen One narrative. Um, and then there's the kind of straightforward hero's quest, which is not really the same thing. So if you're going for the Chosen One storyline that has the kind of Christ-like journey, that involves self-sacrifice mm-hmm. of some major way, that they have to sacrifice something. Often it's their life, but sometimes it's something very integral to them, like, I don't, you know, their powers or their memories or, you know, something has to be sacrificed in order for them to defeat the big bad. And in Harry's case, I felt narratively there were a lot of indicators pointing to the fact that he was going to have to die. So they were going with the whole... And and honestly speaking, I feel like Harry Potter does draw from a lot of Christian imagery. There's a lot of Christian influence in it, and I think a lot of Narnia influence Mm. in it. Um, But I don't think it's inherent, because if you look at another work of fiction that is in response to Narnia, his dark materials. Lyra is technically a chosen one character, but she doesn't die. But she does like her her she's really the only one that can fix the problem of dust, more or less. Mm-hmm. So but I don't think it's inherent to the trip at all. Um so then here's my other question. 
Is there a way, or do you, can you think of any properties that have successfully subverted the trope or the archetype of the chosen one? Can you do it? I have not read this book, but I have heard about it, so I don't know if this is accurate, but isn't Unlondon about a girl who takes the place of the Chosen One after the Chosen One fails? Yes. I love this book. It's great, actually. It's very clever. But here's, here's my thing about it. So it is a subversion of the Chosen One trope. And the basic plot is... There's, you know, it takes place in London, and there's a girl named, um, Zan, there are two girls, Zana and Diba. Diba is the unchosen one, quote unquote. And there is a world beneath the regular city of London called Unlondon, where things are backward and whimsical. It's kind of a very Alice in Wonderland type of story. Um, but Zana is the chosen one, and in the first fight, she's taken out. And so. <laughs> Like, literally the first fight, she fails. And so Diba is left to kind of fill her friend's shoes, more or less. And she Uh has to be the one to defeat the big bad. And I really like this book, and I think it's quite clever. But at the same time, I think, ultimately, by the end of the story, she is the chosen one. Yeah, doesn't she become the chosen one by virtue of, you know, being the one to do this thing? Like, even if she's not really the one who's mentioned in the prophecy, she really Mm -hmm. is the chosen one anyway, and it is kind of, like, retroactively applied to her. Sort of the way, I guess, the whole, like, bring balance to the force is, like, retroactively applied to Luke. Yeah, there is... There is a um, story like that, too, in one of Tamara Pierce's books, um, the trickster duology. There's two sisters, and one is prophesied to be the next queen, and everyone assumes that it refers to the eldest sister, including the god who made the prophecy in the first place. (laughs) And, um, you know, she runs off and elopes with some other guy, and so all that's left is her younger sister, and the revolution kind of rallies around the younger sister because she's what they have left, even though she's not what they had originally wanted. But through, you know, coming together and supporting her, she becomes the chosen one that they'd always wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like, I think it's, I think it's really hard to subvert this trope entirely. I think the ways that people can subvert it, for example, in the case of Unlondon, Diba is not typical not really thought of as your chosen one type. She's not white for one. I think there are narrative clues that she is actually Muslim or Pakistani descent. Um, you know, so she doesn't seem like the kind of person who would be the chosen one sort of person. Um, so there there are ways you can subvert that in the type of character that you choose. Um, whether or not they're actually heroic, because I think a lot of people think of Chosen One figures as heroic figures, as being very Mm -hmm. brave, hairy, for example, or people who rise to the occasion. Um, Or someone like Buffy. I think Buffy Mm -hmm. is pretty much a very classic Chosen One example. But, you know, she started out as a subversion as well, because I think Mm -hmm. Joss Whedon had said that, you know, what she basically thought of as, he thought what would the girl who gets killed first do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in the beginning, too, she rejects her destiny. You know, she has to come to terms with the fact that she is the chosen one and, and you know, she doesn't want it initially, so. Yeah, so I think you can subvert certain things about 
the character, but I'm not sure if you can entirely subvert the narrative without, like, defeating the point. (laughs) Are there stories about... I'm sure there are, but can you think of any stories about people who believe themselves to be chosen and, in fact, are not? Because that's another way I think you could probably subvert that trope. Yes. Um, Well, sort of. There is a a trilogy of books. Uh, The first one is called Ruby Red by Kirsten Gere. Um, They were translated from the German. They're young adult time travel books. But um, so the time travel gene is passed down in this family, and everybody thinks it's this girl, Charlotte. Um, Everybody assumes that it's Charlotte. So Charlotte gets all the training and all the education that it requires to become a time traveler when um, it's actually not Charlotte. It's our heroine. Uh, who is who is the the one who's the time traveler in the family. But even then, it's not told from Charlotte's point of view. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, she... Yeah. It's still cho- told from the chosen one's point of view, um, even though they... She thought she wasn't, and she thought somebody else in the family was. Right. But I don't know if there is a book that's told from the unchosen one point of view... Aside from Unlondon, but she ends up being the chosen one anyway. Right. So that sort of defeats the point. But that would be an interesting exercise. It would be interesting. I think, I wonder if it becomes difficult, because if it's truly not the chosen one, and not someone who becomes the chosen one, you know, through evolution, but if it's truly this person is not chosen and is not going to defeat, you know, the big bag of whatever, then why are they telling the story? Like, what... Why are we listening to them speak instead of someone else? So that's a question that I think you have to have a good answer for. Yeah. Yeah, you would think, why is this, quote, side character's story being told? I think there's... I have not read this. There is a book by Patrick Ness. I think it's The Rest of Us All Live Here. Hmm. I think that's the title of it. I'll look it up and put it up in the show notes. But it's basically about all the side characters or all the kind of collateral damage mm-hmm. characters in in a chosen one's narrative. I haven't read it though, so I don't know whether or not you can make non-chosen one characters in a chosen one story compelling and have their own story. I'm not. I'm not sure. I have yeah. read other Patrick Ness books. The only ones I've read are the Chaos Walking books. Um, which are also kind of a chosen one narrative. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's... I think maybe this is something we can discuss when we kind of dissect future archetypes in our series, whether or not these the narrative can be subverted. We think characters can be subverted and trappings can be subverted, but can the actual narrative itself be subverted? Mm. Because the only way I can think that the Chosen One narrative would be subverted subverted is if the ending of the story is that everything is futile and it was pointless to begin with. Right, right. If the Chosen One doesn't win or bring about the win through their death or sacrifice or, you know, somehow become responsible for it in that way. I don't know if you could tell that story successfully. I mean, like, you could certainly tell it, but... What does that leave you with at the end? Well, it's also what do you want book? to say at the end of that book? I think you can tell it successfully. I think you would just have to examine what you want 
to say about it. Like, if you end a chosen one narrative and the chosen one failing, actually failing, as opposed to having somebody else take up the mantle and everyone's interpreted the prophecy mm. wrong or whatever, if the good guys actually lose and you have an incredibly bleak ending in that way, what are you trying to say as opposed to feeling like you've just been trolling people? That's mm. the problem. Well, I feel like if you subvert the narrative in such a way that the good guys lose, you have to have everything set up properly, and I feel like you have to sort of make a point with that ending. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you want to say about it? Otherwise, you, everyone's going to shut your book. I mean, there are a lot of people who are going to shut your book and hate it anyway, but I think, <laughs> I think people, despite what people say about overused tropes and archetypes... These stories are sort of just in our DNA. This is how we Mm -hmm. tell stories. This is what we are familiar with. So if you don't give people what they are subconsciously expecting, you have to have a very good reason to do so. Yeah. Yeah, these narratives are comforting, you know? There's Mm -hmm. something inherently comforting in these stories. And I think, too, chosen one stories, more than anything else are stories that invite you to identify with the main character in a lot of ways, because not in every Chosen One story, but in a lot of them, our heroes are ordinary people living life and then discover that they have powers, that they have a greater purpose, that they you know, have this important lineage that they were unaware of. And a big hallmark of a lot of Chosen One stories is that we get to go through alongside this character as they're discovering these things about themselves and they go into a new world. You know, we go with Harry to Diagon Alley for the first time. And just as he is learning about the Wizarding World, so too are we. And that creates a stronger bond with him as a character than it would otherwise. And so I think these types of stories are beloved for a reason. Mm -hmm. I think... There is one subversion of a Chosen One narrative, kind of, that I can think of. It's a little bit... I mean, Diana Wynne-Jones does this constantly with all of her books. She sort of always upends things. Um, but it is Howl's Moving Castle, by, um, mm. which I love. And I highly recommend everybody read it because it is just delightful. But basically, the setup is, in the in the land of Ingeri, there are is a family called the Hatters, and the eldest is Sophie, Sophie Hatter. And she's sort of the eldest and the most practical because she knows in a family of three daughters, the eldest is never going to have the adventure. So she's const- so she's like prepping her youngest sister because her youngest sister is the one that's expected to have adventures and like, you know, win the family fortune. Um, and then one day, kind of by accident, she accident Sophie accidentally offends the Witch of the Waste, who curses her so she turns into an old woman. And Sophie now goes, well, I can finally have my adventure. <laughs> um, and it's great. This book is not a chosen one narrative, though, um, at all. It's really kind of... Um, it is a defeat the bad guy, but the person who defeats the bad guy is both Sophie and not Sophie at the same time. I don't know. It's, it's really hard to explain, and I don't want to explain the whole plot without, you know, giving it away. But I highly recommend you guys read it, because it's just, it's just a delightful read. Um, also, the, an- the animated adaptation by Miyazaki is gorgeous. 
Mm-hmm. It's not particularly faithful, like story-wise, uh, and mood-wise, it's very different. But I think both are actually quite good. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the only one I can think of that I think has like successfully kind of examined mm. these tropes and then sort of flip mm. them and still make it narratively interesting. Right. Well, what about in books or in properties where we don't know who the chosen one is? Isn't that, I haven't read all of them, but isn't that like a big thing with the song of ice and fire mm-hmm. where there's a prophecy and they don't know, we don't know yet who fulfills the prophecy it could be any one of a dozen characters or so yeah i wouldn't say a dozen but i would say you could narrow down the prophecy the prince who was promised is sort of the figure that everybody talks about you can sort of narrow down that prophecy to like three of the main characters i could say you would probably say john snow daenerys and Tyrion, or possibly the three who are considered the prince who was promised so, yeah, there's, there's, I think there's that where the story is, you know, there is a chosen one, but no one knows. So they're kind of waiting for that prophecy to fall on someone's shoulders. Because <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to claim it. So, um, I mean, there are things that George R. R. Martin does, tr- subverting trope-wise, that I think is, in fact, very interesting. Because I'm going to spoil the first book for you guys. The main he kills the main character. I was so shocked. <laughs> I haven't read all the books, but I've read I think the first three. And they're the good ones because after that get, it falls apart. Yeah. When we get to the end and Ned Stark is killed, I like up until the la- I was like reading like up I'm a paragraph away from it. And I'm like, somebody's gonna come in and save him. Like some like something's gonna happen. Like so, one of the guards is on his side and is gonna cut him loose, like something you know, because he was he is the protagonist of that book. He you know, he is the person that we follow through that whole story and and the, he just dies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they just kill him. Like I it was honestly the best possible the, it was it was the best possible twist, quote unquote, that I've ever experienced. I actually saw the show first. I read the books afterwards, so I saw the TV show, and it. I think Ned dies like second to last episode, like mm-hmm. actual second to last episode. And I was like, wait a minute, what? Um, and I was so surprised because, like Kelly, I thought he would have an eleventh hour reprieve because he's our point of view character. Like I should have known though because he's played by Sean, Sean. Bean. Yep, <laughs> Sean Bean dies in everything. Everything um, except Jupiter Ascending. He survives in that one. But um, I and I'm usually really good at kind of seeing twists coming, and I did not see this one at all. And because of that, I've always had a sort of a soft spot for the first Game of Thrones book because I was so surprised by that twist. I don't know if he successfully manages to subvert any other mm. tropes in, in later books, and I also think because George R. R. Martin is a pantser, I think sometimes these twists surprise him as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. he, he has said that himself, you know, and his metaphor, of course, is that... Um, Gardeners versus architects. So if you're a gardener, you sort of plant seeds and wait to see what grows, and you sort of prune here and you prune there, and you kind of weed the garden a little bit. And then architects are the, you know, what we would call plotters, and they 
have blueprints and they're going to build this house based on this plan that they have. And George R. R. Martin has said that he's a gardener. So, and I, and I, I, I feel you, George, because I do honestly, especially the fourth book onward, I don't think you know how you're going to, I don't think he knows how he's going to end it. I really don't think he knows how he's going to end his series at all. I think a lot of his quote twists have him have just is is him being surprised by his own subconscious that's coming out, and that's why I feel like the whole series has gotten kind of unruly. Um, but I still like them. I still I still like these books a lot. So I think um, I am eagerly waiting for that, and also for the the TV show to return. Mm, that's soon. Yeah, this month I think. So, all right, do we have any last words, thoughts on the Chosen One archetype? No, I don't think so. I think it's one of my favorites, probably, when done really well. I think I can think of a lot of my favorite stories are Chosen One stories. Um, Aside from Harry Potter, what would you say are your favorite Chosen One stories? I love Buffy. Um, I've always loved that show. I think that's just super great um you know in as much as we would consider star wars a chosen one story i think that fits pretty well um yeah i would say those ones if you don't consider star wars a chosen one story what would you consider it i don't know it's i mean it's definitely good versus evil so yeah well, I guess, you know, we can digress a teensy bit because we might at some point watch the prequels and discuss them as we as we had done for the for the original trilogy. But because Anakin is technically the chosen one in the prequel trilogy, would you consider that a subversion of the chosen one trope? I mean, yeah, I would think so. It's hard not to think about the story, you know, of Anakin, it just, you know, kind of in its bare bones, like recounting the facts versus the way it was executed, which was just so horrible. <laughs> like, the prequels did not have to be bad. Um, they could have been really good, and they weren't. <laughs> but I don't think that that is inherently because the beats of the story are bad. Um, some of the beats of the story are bad, but in general, we knew the bare bones of Darth Vader's origin beforehand. We knew that he used to be a Jedi and that he went dark and, you know, that he'd been in love and had, you know, these two children and the, the roughest outlines of his story were there. And there's always something interesting about people who fall about people who, um, you know, begin on the side of the morally good and don't end there. Because usually that means that something deeply personal happened that altered their belief system um, and, and led them down this other path to do things that once upon a time would have been repugnant to them. So I think that's an inherently interesting story. 
I don't think the prequels execute it well. <laughs> and partly that's an acting problem, and partly that's a writing problem, and there's all kinds of problems. <laughs> there's in, just in, problems on every level. Um, yeah. I would say it's partially actually a story problem, too, because I think it would have been successful if they had not tried to make it a chosen one story and stuck mm. with the, stuck with Oedipus, which is, yeah. a, which is essentially... It's a tragedy about a man who sort of is so afraid of a prophecy coming true that he fulfills it anyway. Right. Um, and, and honestly, we don't really get to Oedipus until uh, Revenge of the Sith when he has those dreams of Padme dying and then he fulfills that, you know, vision of Padme dying by killing her. But um, I, it's... I feel like because the first two movies sort of kind of set up Anakin as a chosen one. You know, he's this uh-huh. orphan boy and he's got these powers and apparently a virgin birth. You know, like weird kind of like oh. Christ parallel. But they don't follow through on the whole Christ parallel thing. Nope. So if they just kind of stuck with Oedipus, I think it would have been far more successful as opposed to trying to mash these two narratives together and therefore it not coming out. Right, and also just mm-hmm. just get George Lucas away from his own project. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I don't. Yeah, I wouldn't consider that a subversion. I just think that this, that's them attempting to tell a chosen one story and not knowing what story they actually had to tell. Yeah, that was just a hot mess. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of edits I could have offered. I would say you start with teenage Anakin. You don't start with child Anakin. You start with teenage Anakin. Yeah, there's no reason for all those go-kart races in the first movie and him as a child and him. Yeah, there's just it's just not necessary. Because mm. there's nothing extraordinary about him as a child. Like, other than he is the extraordinary child. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't do anything in that first movie that we need to see him do as a eight-year-old or whatever. I Yeah, I would agree because if you started that with him as a teenager and then when they say he's too old to be trained, you believe it. Right. As opposed to this, like, five-year-old, and you're like, they're like, oh, he's too old. Well, how old do you have to be? Like, <laughs> do you start training straight out of the womb? What is this? Like, I don't yes. understand. You know, so if they started him as a teenager, he needs cocky. He knows he has these powers. You know, and he, yeah, he's Tom Riddle. Yeah, he's Tom Riddle, and he thinks, no, I, I don't need to be trained because I'm self-taught, and I can do like there's oh George Lucas. I wish I had a time machine. I could go back and fix this for you. <sighs> this is what editors are for, people, <laughs> because you might have some good ideas, <laughs> and you might need help executing them. And this is why editors exist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Alright. I think on that note we can probably end our discussion about mm-hmm. about the chosen one. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. So we can move on to our next segments. What are we working on? I am uh, not working on anything. I cra- I crash read a manuscript over the weekend, um, which was very exciting and fun, but I have nothing to officially say on that yet. So mostly just working, doing the agenting thing. It is summertime in publishing, which means everything slows down. So, uh, you know, everything's pretty slow right now. Yeah, I um uh, I 
think we mentioned the last time I turned in my draft, which is great. Uh, and I just looked at it again for the first time after a couple of days off, and it was a disaster. <laughs> my editor Always hasn't fun gotten, to do. Yeah, no, my editor hasn't gotten her notes back to me because it's only been a couple of days, and I sent mm-hmm. it right before the holiday, so it's not like I expect her to turn it around immediately, but I'm almost like about to email her being like, I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> Avert your eyes. Don't look at it. Um I just, maybe I need some distance away, but I, um, I think I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I am home. I'm visiting my parents on kind of a long stretch. Um, that was the reason, part of the reason I was working so hard on my book was because I wanted it done before I came out to LA to see my family and to just have like a, an actual vacation, not mm-hmm. like going somewhere and experiencing, but just like a vacation where I don't have to worry about life stuff. Um, so that's been quite nice. Uh, but it, the time off has been good, even if though it's only been a couple of days, because I am itching to get back to my manuscript. You know, I, I want to fix it. I want to work on it. It's also just such a disaster. I'm like, I don't want to look at um, I am still waiting to hear back on my secret project, so no word mm. on that yet. But as like Kelly had said, it is Summer Friday. Summer yeah. Fridays in no one's really around and trying to wrangle anyone together to make any sort of decision between Memorial Day and Labor Day and publishing is just it's like herding cats you just kind of try mm-hmm. and maybe you'll get them but so kind of a slow summer for us so far which I think is good I think, yeah I think we both needed the break a little bit <laughs> uh, so you're reading anything aside from manuscripts no, like I said, I crashed at that manuscript um, over the holiday weekend, and I've had another couple that I've been reading, so that's good because I had been kind of focused on queries and not manuscripts so much, um, and now I'm definitely kind of back in a reading swing of things, um, but no, nothing published right now. Yeah, I have a couple things. I'm still reading for blurbs. Um there, I'm so mad because I uh, had been sent galleys, not necessarily for blurbs, but just, you know, people had sent me galleys, whether or not I wanted to read them. And I really wanted to read The City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty, mm. and I did not bring it with me. <gasps> I, I was so mad. And it, uh, I was, like, looking through my bag the other day, and I was like, oh, no, I didn't bring it with me, and it's not published yet. Ah! <laughs> But, um, yeah, since it is vacation, I think I'll probably just wander down to the bookstore and see what's on the shelves, because I also feel kind of woefully behind on mm-hmm. what's even out. Like, I really do. I'm like, I feel like I haven't caught up on anything. So, nothing particular, nothing published. It's mostly work stuff for me, too, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, any off-menu recommendations? No, I watched Glow a second time. um, it's still good when you watch it a second time within a like two week span um yeah no i have not watched uh anything else i put on i like to have um tv in the background sometime when i'm doing like admin work um for agenting and stuff there's a lot of uh, spreadsheets I fill out and things I do that's just kind of admin and and brainless and I like to do that when I have um tv on and I put on 
Lost, which, um, as JJ knows, I was very into when it was out. We watched it together when we were living together, and um, I had not gone back and watched it in a long time. I went back and watched um, the first handful of episodes from season one, and it's a lot less enjoyable for me now. Why? Is it because you know what's coming? I think think so i mean the first season is still by far the best and i haven't made it all the way through the first season yet um some of it is just when lost began i was not a critical viewer in the same way that i am now um i think i've talked before on this podcast about how i have kind of like my enjoyment brain and my critical brain and i used to have to deliberately switch between them for a long time and as time has gone on that's no longer true so i can read something for enjoyment and critical you know viewing at the same time um and i never really watched lost critically before and Jack really sucks. <laughs> I've told you that forever. You have told me that forever because JJ is usually right about these things. <laughs> um, because she always has her critical brain on. Is true. I can't turn and, it off. Because Ravenclaw. <laughs> and, uh, and I always had problems with Kate. And some of my problems with Kate were legitimate and some of them were ragey, caps lock, emotional feelings. Um but Jack, I never really minded until much later in the season when he just kind of falls apart as a character. But even way back in season one, I'm like, God, you're kind of like so annoying. Like, and he's such a main focus of the show in those early seasons that he's just always on screen. (laughs) Yeah. I think so again, to tie this back to the subject we were talking about earlier, he is the chosen one of that series, kind of. Mm -hmm. Or rather, yeah. he's like the Christ figure of that series. And, oh, he's so insufferable to start. I think part of my issue with Jack as a character, unfortunately, it doesn't actually have much to do with Jack so much as I just can't stand the actor, mm. whatever his name was. I think he... Matthew Fox. I think he has no charisma no, whatsoever. He, he just just lacks leading man charisma. So every time I look at him... I kind of forget he's there, and even though I'm, like, actually looking at him and he's there, I just forget he exists. So that's, like, like a, an actual, like a, a casting issue. But I also feel like, narratively, they keep expecting us to be sympathetic with or empathetic with Jack. But I find it impossible to find any sort of emotional foothold on this character. And again, mm-hmm. I think part of it is a casting and acting issue. I just don't really particularly like Matthew Fox and I just don't really want to take that extra step to engage with this character mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah. And he's just well, so also much more boring. Like he's got the he is. boring backstory. He does. It's a really it's not compelling. It's not interesting and he does not do enough to sell it. And I think ever since you told me that the original plan was for Jack to die and Kate to be the leader of the group, I'm just so angry that it didn't happen. Because, one, it gets rid of Jack. Two, it solves at least half, if not more, of my problems with Kate. Um, Yeah. Because the biggest problem with Kate is that she has nothing to do. She has no purpose. And her whole purpose in the show is to go stop other people from doing shit that needs to get done and it's so annoying um or be told I, that she can't do something right yeah don't you can't come kate and then kate <laughs> comes and yeah um so 
ever since you told me that that, you know, was an original behind the scenes uh, tidbit that you'd found out, you told me that. And I'm just so angry that they didn't, (laughs) they didn't do it that way. Uh, They were going to pull a Ned Stark, actually. They were going Mm -hmm. to set you up to believe that Jack was going to be the leader and the main character and then kill him off. Um, And that would have been so much better on multiple Mm -hmm. levels. It would have been so Mm -hmm. much better to have done it that way. Um, But I just, either they got network pushback or studio pushback or something where they just were like, no, we need a dude leader. That was basically the reasoning why they kept Jack. Yeah. So. So, meh. I'm not really enjoying it this time around. I'll have to find something else to put on during my admin work. Maybe Glow for the third time. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, if you guys haven't watched it yet, you must. It's so good. It's so enjoyable. Well, I don't really have much of an off-menu recommendation either. I um, So I flew out from the East Coast to L.A., and I normally use flights as an opportunity to catch up on recent movies that I had not yet seen. And I had hoped to catch Guy Ritchie's King Arthur, um, which I do want to see, but didn't really want to go see in the theater. Um, but alas, it was not on my flight. But I did finally watch Moana. Oh yeah, I oh I really loved it. I I I always meant to go see it, but I just never got around to it. This is normally the case with me in films. It's like I I want to see it, I just never go around to seeing it. Um, but I finally got around to Moana, and I oh I just loved it. I thought it was great. I thought The Rock was great as Maui. I thought um, you know the songs are catchy, and I love the the animation and the music and the story and it was just really really good and I really really enjoy it so if you're one of like five people left in the world who have not seen Moana <laughs> it's so good oh it's so good um, also Glow I was actually thinking of rewatching that myself <laughs> do it do it I don't know why I like it so much I mean I know why I like it so much but it's also I don't know why like it doesn't on the surface seem like something that I would like at all. No, not at all. And yet at the same time I just I think and you and I talked I, about it, I think it's the characters. I do. I think it treats women like people. And I think unfortunately that's like a, that for me anyway, that's like a real novelty. Like I was every single one of the fourteen women on that screen is in some way reflective of a woman that I know in real life. They are complicated and messy, and some of them are unlikable, and some of them are wonderful. Like, they're just these nuanced, varied, real people that are not objectified in any way at any point. And I would say also that these characters are in themselves archetypes, if you want to do it, if you want to look at it that way, that especially the roles that they, the personas that they have to adopt for wrestling mm. as being both stereotypes and archetypes. Um, you know, there's like the all-American girl versus the mm-hmm. evil Russian, you know, and then you've got all sorts of ethnic stereotypes that are really unpalatable. Um, mm-hmm. Well, even the concept in wrestling of the face and the heel mm-hmm. is like, you know, there is a, a hero and a villain in every wrestling match. Yeah, there's an episode of Glow <laughs> where uh, one of the characters goes to see a men's wrestling match, match and I love because the characters, the hero is Steel Horse, the working class hero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Did he come, he came in on a motorcycle to like a Bruce Springsteen oh, yeah. song? Oh it was yeah, amazing. he comes in on a motorcycle in jeans and a tight white T-shirt. <laughs> um, and the the heel was Monopoly Man. Was it Monopoly yes. Man? And the story is so. like he bought up all the steel mills and steel horses town, <laughs> and now everyone's out of a job. <laughs> so good. I mean, there are many reasons to watch Glow, but I also think if you want to dissect archetypes and stories and the ways mm-hmm. people employ them, I, I do think that Glow is meta in that way. Like, it gives you these mm-hmm. fully rounded characters to care about. And I, I do. I Like, by the end of it, I cared about every single one of these, these women on screen. But it also kind of picks apart the stories that they have to tell to sell entertainment to an audience. So if if that's at all interesting to you guys, and just because this is a great show and I really like it. Mm-hmm. That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to be continuing our archetype series, and we are going to talk about tragedies and fatal flaws and all kinds of good stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. We haven't had new reviews in a while, you guys, and so we're kind of I know hopeful that you know we, every time we look it up, we're just like, no, no new reviews. I know. I'm gonna start bribing people soon, <laughs> or have like a raffle or something. Give me my reviews. <laughs> um, and if you want more pub crawl goodness, and you know that you do, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, Kelly Van Sant, at BookishChick on Twitter, or my website, PenAndParsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website, SJJones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr or ask us a question using the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. I have an unhealthy fixation on other people's validation of me. Gryffindor. <laughs> <laughs>